This is Archive Atlanta, episode 253, Coca-Cola, part two. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I know, I know. I promised I would finish this part two in January. But word of advice, do not put out a part one when you haven't even started researching part two. And especially with a topic like Coca-Cola, it's a lot. But I did it. This week, I pick up the story of Coca-Cola after it sold in 1919 and took it through the Great Depression, World War II, civil rights, Diet Coke, New Coke, and the world of Coca-Cola. In part one, we left off with Asa Candler becoming mayor of Atlanta in 1916, him transferring controlling stock to his five children, and those children selling Coca-Cola in 1919 for $25 million. But before going forward, let's back up just a bit. Howard Candler, Asa's oldest son, had seriously thought about selling the company around 1916. Coca-Cola was weathering a legal storm in Chattanooga and set the asking price at $25 million, taking $15 million in common stock. While that deal never happened, the idea and the price were basically out in the ethos. Asa Candler relinquished his mayoral term in January of 1919, and he turned immediately to care for his wife, who was dying of cancer, with only weeks to live. The president of the Coca-Cola company at the time was Samuel Candler Dobbs. He was the son of Harris Dobbs and nephew of Asa Candler. Samuel began his career as a salesman, then a sales manager, and eventually president from 1919 to 1920. It was during a May of 1919 Coca-Cola board meeting that Dobbs suggested that the company perform an internal audit, you know, making sure they're paying the right amount of taxes, stuff like that. What he didn't disclose is that he was really shopping a deal to sell to Ernest Woodruff, a man that Asa Kaler did not like. Ernest was born in Columbus, Georgia in 1863. Eight years later, his sister Annie was born. Annie actually married Joel Hurt, which connected the family to Atlanta and especially Inman Park. Woodruff married Emily Caroline Winship in 1885, and Ernest and Joel founded the Atlanta and Edgewood Street Railroad in 1889. By the early 1900s, he was president of the Trust Company of Georgia Bank. So there was a lot of criticism. I think a lot of drama came from the streetcar days. There was a lot of aggressive um, tactics and stories in Atlanta's history, but he's also really criticized as head of the bank for using the bank's money almost like his own. He mercilessly buys out um, and reorganizes companies into larger corporations. He did this with Atlanta Ice and Coal Company and Atlantic Steel, just to name a few. So these stories really infiltrate public opinion. And so the city also didn't love Woodruff the same way they loved Asa Candler, who is this like good teetotaler, you know, like moral man. Dobbs, however, was friends with Ernest, and he knew that the details of this deal were going to have to stay private. So for that reason, they had all meetings about the sale at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. The big issue with the deal was that the trust company could not afford to buy Coca-Cola on its own, and so it assembled a financial backing from Wall Street investors. They also needed a figure to be the face of the deal, and that would be Eugene Stetson. Stetson was vice president of Guarantee Trust Company Bank, and he handled the negotiations and purported himself as the head of the group of investors. Attorney Robert C. Alston from Atlanta went around, got all signatures from the Candler children on a single sheet of paper, and basically created a blank bill of sale. In August of 1919, Woodruff shares with his bank that they're buying Coca-Cola, and the board freaks out. Um, Lots of 
kind of secondary drama there that I'm not going to get into, but they're like, well, you know, we can't afford this and so on and so forth. Um, and Ernest really has to work furiously because there is only a month to complete the deal before the stock option expires. The price was still $25 million, $15 million in cash, and $10 million in preferred stock that paid 7% a year. The cash was really the issue, but Woodruff had a wild idea. Together, these investors formed a new Delaware-based Coca-Cola company, and they sold shares. 500,000 shares at $40 a share. So not only would they raise the cash they needed, but even give them a little extra. And then they realized that they wanted to keep some of the shares. So they sold 417,000 and kept 83,000 for themselves. This is all complicated, at least for me. I'm not in finance. It's very legal, though. But there would have been negative public opinion. So again, another secret that needed to be kept. Finally, by the end of the summer of 1919, the deal was finalized and made public. Howard Candler was made president of the board of directors, which actually had no decision-making powers whatsoever. But the three new Coca-Cola officers were Ernest Woodruff, Eugene Stetson, and Samuel Candler Dobbs. By 1920, Coca-Cola's new ownership faced their first challenges. So during World War I, many commodities were under price control. We've talked about this in a lot of episodes, but really sugar. And so those price uh, limits are about to expire and Coca-Cola is forced to make some choices. One of them is canceling the syrup price agreement that had been in place with Coca-Cola bottlers since the beginning. Two of these bottlers took the company to court and they won. The court ruled that the syrup contract made under Candler was perpetual and Coca-Cola could not pass off the higher cost to bottlers. This forced Coke to take a million-dollar line of credit to purchase sugar reserves, and this loan was taken from Eugene Stetson's bank, and the original written formula was given in collateral, tucked away in a New York City vault. In 1922, Ernest Woodruff secretly formed the Coca-Cola International Corporation and orchestrated that entity to hold a majority of Coca-Cola stock. This is essentially a coup. So then he names the officers of that as Tom Glenn, Jim Nunnally, uh, W.C. Bradley, E.F. Hutton, and his son, Robert Woodruff. This was also a way for Robert to take over leadership of the company. So in very plain terms from what I read, Ernest kind of sucked at being president. And other leadership knew this, and they really wanted Robert Woodruff to take the helm. So let's talk about Robert Woodruff. Born in 1889 in Columbus, Georgia, he was the eldest child of Ernest and Emily, and was soon followed by brothers Ernest Jr., George, and Henry. Ernest Jr. died very young from spinal meningitis. The family moved to Atlanta in 1893, where Robert was four years old, and they lived in Inman Park. He was a mediocre student, self-identified that way. He flunked out of boys' high school, and his family sent him to the Georgia Military Academy, which is today Woodward Academy. After graduation, he attended Emory. So in 1923, Robert became president of the Coca-Cola Company, and his first order of business was chopping up the United States into four territories and hiring representatives to cover each section. He then turned his attention to retrieving the original formula that his father gave as collateral, going to New York City to the trust company vault and bringing it home. And so Robert is really credited with like creating that lure secrecy around the original formula. He made all these rules. No one can see it without board approval. You can only see it in the presence of a chairman. Um, Only two company officials could know the formula at that time, and no one was allowed to know who those two people were. That did not exist before him. In the late 20s and early 30s, the marketing efforts really expanded. When Robert became president, the new thing was billboards. 
By the end of the decade, Coca-Cola was plastered across 160,000 billboards across the country, along with 20,000 murals and 5 million soda fountain glasses. Two catchphrases, the pause that refreshes and thirst knows no season, entered the lexicon. In 1927, the first radio advertisement aired, and in 1931, the artist Haddon Sunblom uh, painted the famous Santa Claus ad. So this Santa was jolly, round, wearing red, but despite popular legend, he did not create this out of thin air. Um, illustrations of Santa Claus in red suits with white trim had appeared before in 1906, 1908, and 1925. So while Coke did not invent Santa Claus, their use of Santa Claus to sell Coca-Cola during the winter slow season definitely, definitely had an impact, and it kind of put that image of Santa into our public consciousness. The 1930s brought not only the Great Depression, but Federal Repeal Day. And so they were really worried about this, because you have to remember, this entire time the company's in existence, you can't have alcohol. And turns out it was a non-event. Now, there was other events to come, but we'll talk about those. In the same year, Woodruff announced Coke's advertising budget would be increased by $1 million. Again, it's the Great Depression. And in 1936, executives chose not to cut employees' wages, but also pay end-of-year bonuses. Uh, and an employee from that time remembers that like, people are crying in the office, and they really thought of Robert Woodruff almost like a godlike figure. This idea is really spread throughout the state. Woodruff, um, he basically financed the city of Atlanta's 1936 payroll to the tune of $730,000. Um, he saved the future Woodward Academy from closing. He established a foundation in 1937 that donated to charities around the state. And so while the depression wasn't really a match for Coca-Cola, it did have to face off against Pepsi. No one knows why Coca-Cola never filed an imitator suit against Pepsi, as it did to numerous others over the decades, but by 1933, the cola wars had begun. Pepsi's strategy was to sell more, 12 ounces, for the same nickel cost as Coca-Cola, which really raises popularity. Coca-Cola even sued Pepsi for repeated substitution issues in their New York stores. Um, basically, somebody would go into a soda shop, they'd order a Coke, but they would get a Pepsi instead. And Coca-Cola lost this case. As World War II began, Coca-Cola had not yet broken into an international market except in Germany, which was a problem. Woodruff sent an executive uh, there to mitigate that situation, but the war would actually be the thing that globalizes Coke. So the U.S. War Department asked the company to supply Coca-Cola to the troops in Iceland, and they shipped 17,000 cases to the capital there. They also asked for it to be available at all bases in the Pacific. And just like the First World War, there were sugar rations during this time. But Coca-Cola was able to bypass these because they were supplying troops. And they got a little creative um, with that whole troops definition. So any town that had a USO or a Red Cross Center, etc., they were kind of putting it under that category. Because of this, their 1942 production volume was only down 16% from the prior year. In 1943, Dwight Eisenhower sent a cable to Coca-Cola from Allied headquarters in North Africa asking for 10 bottling plants and enough syrup to provide men with 6 million bottles of Coke each month. Soldiers were obsessed with that connection to home. They said the most requested items there were, in this order, mail, cigarettes, gum, and Coca-Cola. Because the first bottles that were sent were rationed, there was an entire black market formed. 
And to summarize the impact of World War II on Coca-Cola, at the end, the company had 63 bottling plants overseas and returning GIs brought a lifelong attachment to the drink. The 1960s brought tab and civil rights. So Diet Cola is introduced by another soft drink company and Coca-Cola had a standing policy to only use Coca-Cola in its flagship product. So basically like any other product they made couldn't have Coca or Cola in it. So Tab was developed in 1963 and marketed to consumers who, quote, wanted to keep tabs on their weight. It became really, really popular. But after Diet Coke launched in 1982, took over Tab sales, Coca-Cola introduced Diet Coke. So they were like, oh, that marketing rule is gone. As the United States grappled with civil rights for Black Americans, Coke executives grappled internally with what to do. So they knew that being progressive was best for business. I mean, there's 15 million Black Americans at this time that were drinking Coca-Cola. They did have the first Black salesman, Fred Graham, hired out of a New York bottling plant. Um, And in Atlanta, Coca-Cola owned the Atlanta Crackers, which was a baseball team. Um, And in the 1940s, they actually sponsored the exhibition games against the Brooklyn Dodgers, which brought Jackie Robinson to Atlanta. Now, while the games were popular and without violence, the Grandmaster of the Klan called for a Coca-Cola boycott. So the safest method, and by safe I mean the best way to not upset racist white Southerners, was for Woodruff to donate personally and quietly to African-American causes. So it was kind of interesting for me to read this because we live in a world where like, you can, you know, all media is mixed together, like everybody can access whatever they want if they choose to. But this was a time when black media and white media were completely separate. And I don't think one person read the other, so to speak. So Woodruff joins the board of Tuskegee. Um, Coca-Cola starts advertising in black magazines and newspapers. They hire a black PR guy. They raise money for the United Negro College Fund. Um, They often had Atlanta musicians Lionel Hampton and Graham Jackson play at Coca-Cola events. And kind of all of these things flew under the radar of white, especially white Atlantans that would probably be upset about this. One of the more famous stories is that when Martin Luther King Jr. was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, two local clergymen organized a dinner and almost every white executive in Atlanta refused to attend. Woodruff was actually injured. He had fallen off a horse or had a bad horse riding accident. Um, and his, he's at his hunting preserve in South Georgia. But he made a call to Coca-Cola president at the time, Paul Austin, with instructions to get everyone in line, so to speak. The event sold out and several Coca-Cola executives were there, but not Woodruff. In 1979, the Coca-Cola company erected their new headquarters on North Avenue near Georgia Tech's campus. In 1986, they renamed that portion of the street Coca-Cola Plaza in celebration of the company's 100th anniversary. And that building is still their offices today. By 1983, Coca-Cola's share of the cola market had declined to 24%, largely because of its competition with Pepsi. Then-President Roberto Goizeta had already debuted Diet Coke, but in 1985, they released New Coke. So this was months after Robert Woodruff had died. I think the legend is that he approved it or he said it was fine. And I don't have direct memories of this because I was two years old. But the people that lived through this time have opinions. And the newspaper was hilarious. So like for many Southerners, their regional identities were tied to Coca-Cola. So they thought that this was a surrender to the Yankees, aka Pepsi, because Pepsi was based in New York. Um, There was actually a man from Seattle who formed the, quote, old Coca-Cola drinkers of America, end quote. And he spent $40,000 of his own money. 
The company hotline received so many calls that employees were required to work overtime to answer the phones. And I actually stumbled on an article where RuPaul, who was then living in Atlanta, was out protesting in the streets about his hatred of New Coke. In July of 1985, only 79 days after launching, the company returned to its original formula. In 1990, the company opened the world of Coca-Cola, located downtown near underground Atlanta. It stayed open until 2007 when the state of Georgia purchased the property for about a million dollars. There were initial plans to open a museum um, or the state to open a museum, but the property remains vacant today. The new and the current world of Coca-Cola opened in 2007 and it's adjacent to Centennial Olympic Park. So there you have it, the second part of the Coca-Cola story. Yes, I know, I know. There's a lot that I've missed and I didn't cover, but as always, my goal is to give you something that's 20 minutes or less and inspires people to read and research more. And there are uh, several books about Coca-Cola. I'm gonna link at least the two that I really relied on in the show notes. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. Um, You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes if you wanna support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week. 